Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So I was reading a, an article in the Washington Post the other day, and I thought it was really uh, excellently done. It's titled, and you know we're turning the corner into year two of our pandemic experience. The, uh, the headline of the article is, a Viral Tsunami, How the Underestimated Coronavirus Took Over the World. How SARS-CoV-2 slowly released its secrets and proceeded to shut down much of the planet. And it really is an excellent read. And joining us on the program to, uh, to talk to us about this is Frances Sneed Sellers. Uh, she is one of the uh, three reporters, Washington Post reporters, who wrote the article. Uh, Ms. Sneed Sellers, Ms. Sneed Sellers, it's, um, it, 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 it's just a great story and, and well done. Thank how, you so much. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was quite something to do the reporting for that. How long did you and your colleagues work on it, and where did it take you, both literally and figuratively? Well, you know, in some ways we've been working on it for, for something like 14 months in, in our notebook. So a lot of this did come uh, from looking back and revisiting people we'd spoken. One of the things about this um, article, if you read it, is we tried to tell it in the moment. We tried to um, not have people looking back in retrospect because hindsight is such a gift, right? We know so much more. But actually trying to look back and ask them for emails or notes or what they had said to each other yeah. back in January and February of 2020, before we knew this would be a pandemic. This is what really impressed me, because you have specific dates, and then they have the numbers of cases as they were increasing globally, and the impact as in the numbers of deaths, and then you have the actual participants, or the people who write, you write about, the experts you write about in the piece, who are talking to each other. And, and let me start ask you about this. The article begins New Year's Eve 2019, when a famous Columbia University epidemiologist is having dinner with his wife and a fellow scientist, and the phone rings. Please tell us yeah. what happened. Quite something. That This is Ian Litkin from Columbia, who's a very well-known, he's sometimes known as the, 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 the virus hunter. He's a well-known epidemiologist who often works in China. And he had heard, actually, a couple of weeks before that, that something was going on. But the phone rings that New Year's Eve, um, picks it up. He's told not to worry. He's told, sure, there's a coronavirus out there, but doesn't seem to be very transmissible. Don't worry. Um, there were other signals coming around. He definitely... Um, you know, thought there might be something else going on. And in fact, that very same evening, a call went to the World, an email, I'm sorry, went to the World Health Organization saying, yep, there was some sort of virus out there, a pneumonia-like illness, um, that it was spreading and it was of unknown etiology. They didn't know exactly what it was. So there were these signals coming. From there, we had this very rapid build of um, Concern and spreading disease, as you mentioned, which we document through the piece with right. the numbers as they increase, both of um, cases and deaths. Right. So by January, oh, I found this very interesting as well, because the first messaging was what we also heard in this country, nothing to worry about, low-level threat. Many of us heard words like the, those from our national governments. And so the question becomes, how did so many get it so wrong? But let me move ahead a little bit. By January 9th, 2020, your article quotes a scientist sending an email to colleagues which read, don your spacesuits. That's ominous. <laughs> yes, quite an email, right? That was quite a message from But he thought this was going to be much like what happened. He was a coronavirus expert. He thought it was going to be much like what happened in 2003 when we had the big SARS epidemic, which I think the U.S. thanks Canada a lot for helping helping to stall. But um, SARS, the first SARS, was 
much more deadly and rather less transmissible, very much less transmissible than this one. So these, these coronavirus experts thought, phew, we can probably contain this one. They were wrong. And so many people, when we went back and, and talked to them, say, wow, we were humbled by this virus. And actually not because it was so immediately deadly. It was humbling because it was so stealthy, because it could spread um, pre-symptomatically and asymptomatically. So it has kept moving its way around the world in this very surreptitious way. Mm-hmm. So the initial thinking, as you said, was that COVID would not become a pandemic. And that thinking was shared by, and I find this really <laughs> quite amazing, that thinking was shared by experts who had experience with SARS and MERS, which right. were also so coronaviruses. It would probably be deadlier and that they'd be able to contain it more quickly. Yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, if you think about an illness like Ebola, it fells people, in fact, before they're able to spread it very widely. Right. This illness, early on, they discovered that people on average were spreading it to more than two people, two and a half people per, per individual. So you get this exponential growth um, going on. And it was actually, you know, um, in those early months that there were the first hints of its asymptomatic spread. And that was a real, very worrying game changer. Dr. Fauci was very upset to learn about that, actually heard about it in a press conference rather than um, seeing the data and reacted um, with some frustration to hearing it like that, because that really was a game game changer, knowing that this thing could spread without people knowing that they actually were suffering from it. I'm speaking with Francis Steed Sellers, reporter with the Washington Post, one of three reporters who wrote uh, an excellent article in the Washington Post, A Viral Tsunami, How the Underestimated Coronavirus Took Over the World. And it did. So now, we, and again, I want to remind our listeners, this article, and you should read it, everybody, it, it goes day by day, well, not day by day, but it certainly breaks down dates and months and what was happening at that particular time. So now by the, we're in the 10th of January, the first death traceable directly to COVID-19 happened in Wuhan, China. At least that was the first information that we had. Three days later, a death outside China from COVID, and by January 22nd, so 12 days after the first death traceable to COVID in Wuhan, January 22nd, 12 days later, the World Health Organization was deliberating whether this was becoming a global health emergency. That is a major, that's a major upward line. Right, a major upward line, and it's a very key moment. At that moment, they decided not to to declare it. It's called a PHEIC, a Public Health Emergency of International Concern. At that point, they didn't think they had enough evidence of it spreading beyond China. But a week later, by January the 30th, yes, PHEIC, which in many t- in many ways, because this, this is what uh, the international health regulations are built around this terminology, for the World Health Organization, that moment was more significant than in many ways than than when they declared it a pandemic. That was when they knew that they really had a big problem on their hands. Ms. Steed Seller, so here we are, end of January, and the yeah. World Health Organization declared a global health emergency. And then a certain cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, appeared on the radar, on the horizon. Walk us through the significance of what happened on that ship. So there was infection on board, initially 10 people, and... Um, Two, uh, uh, well, a, a group of um, Americans flew out there, but James Law and Michael Callahan were two American experts on coronaviruses who boarded that ship and then um, began to examine what was going on. And uh, Callahan told us that he thought this illness, as I've mentioned earlier, would be like the former SARS. 
And he gets on the ship and discovers that even people who have been keeping to their cabins, keeping away from other people, in other words, doing everything that they should do, seem to be getting infected. And this was this terrified him. He thought he really did have a pandemic on his hands there. He didn't see how this was going to be contained quickly. Um, so that was really a, a moment. It was also um, such a transfixing moment uh, in, in terms of television or, um, you know, at storytelling to think of this ship floating around. It obviously went into a Japanese port at one point, moment, but the, the thought of these people sort of being contained, and we've learned since then how dangerous these congregate settings are, whether they're nursing homes or prisons or cruise ships that people caught together are very vulnerable. And here were all these people thinking they'd gone on a vacation instead being on this sort of hellish um, trip from which they couldn't return safely. Yeah. And from there, we became, oh, China's approach to dealing with COVID was extreme, and you wrote about that. But we also became Mm -hmm. very aware of northern Italy and New York City Mm -hmm. and what happened in those those particular environments. So, Italy was a horrifying uh, example of a whole health system being brought down. Um, I talked to a doctor in New York uh, a radiologist who his name is Adam Bernheim, who had been um, he had a relationship with Chinese hospitals who'd been sending him CAT scans of people's lungs. So he had seen the very distinctive pattern um, that showed up on people's lungs when they developed the coronavirus. He'd been watching that. He'd seen. He'd learned about the first cases. He could diagnose based on CAT scans. They had people beginning to pour. He works at Mount Sinai, and then suddenly, you know, he knew this great wave was going to come. But he didn't really believe it until it hit New York. And we can all remember those extraordinary scenes of, you know, tragic scenes of people, you know, waiting outside hospitals, people dying uh, in the streets, being taken to hospitals. That's only a year ago. It's just, you know, horrifying to remember. So where are we today? Uh, 117 million cases, 2.6 million deaths, Mm -hmm. a fatigued Mm -hmm. global population, the arrival of various vaccines. A year later, what has stayed with you about the research you and your colleagues conducted about year one of the COVID pandemic? So I think a couple of things have stayed with me. One is the need uh, to uh, to make sure that public health, as opposed to individual treatment, is well-funded. So I think when I talked um, with people at the World Health Organization about this, they talked about sometimes not particularly uh, wealthy countries pouring a lot of resources into the kinds of disease surveillance work that happens before anybody reaches the hospital door. That's how you beat infection before the hospital doors. When when you're treating everybody in the hospital, you really um, have lost in some ways the infection wars. Um, I think another thing is how humbled scientists say they have been by this virus. And I think we know that it won't be the last zoonotic virus we contend with. And so I think that's another lesson to to learn from epidemiologists and know that uh, nature will keep on testing us. And you you wrote in the piece that you were told by scientists, this isn't the big one. The big one is yet to come. That sounds very ominous. Yes, I think this was, again, a message from the World Health Organization, one of their chief officers there. Um, You know, this you could have another version of this that was a little bit deadlier. You could have something that had an even longer incubation period. you know, we could end up with more deaths and more trouble. And it's upon us to try to organize ourselves to, as I said, put money and investment into disease surveillance, the public health doctors who are so often overlooked. So are you, after doing all the research with your colleagues and writing the piece and uh, doing interviews with people like me, are you 
more optimistic, uh, and I, I, I shouldn't be asking reporters, journalists to give me opinions. This is what I do. But, uh, but how do you feel about where we are? How do you feel about the last year and where we're headed? Well, gosh, I mean, there have been some enormous triumphs, scientific triumphs in terms of um, preparing a vaccine, right? I mean, I think nobody can deny that was a remarkable, those were remarkable achievements. Um, I think we've seen bigger challenges. Again, this comes down to public health messaging and things like that. Enormous challenges. Um, I'm working on a story right now um, that looks at... um, the, the, the readiness of people to take this vaccine. that we, we didn't really have money to message or prepare people to take the vaccines that are now available. So we've seen a lot of hesitancy. Um, those sorts of things, people, you know, public health people who know about uh, vaccine um, campaigns say, even when you're developing, even when you're preparing the strategies of giving out the vaccines, you have to be preparing people side effects, whatever else, teaching them, educating them. And I think one of the big lessons from this is um, have we, you know, we've had this huge scientific advance, but have we done the work that's needed to prepare people? Yeah. The the most remarkable thing to me out of all of the accomplishments over the last year, and people's tolerance is, is really significant. People have People have, have have put up with a lot, and they've 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 lived through some extremely challenging times. And we know there's a pandemic, there's a parallel pandemic to COVID, and that's just mental health. But what's remarkable, health, yeah, what's remarkable to me is that these vi- these vaccines were developed as quickly as they were, and that speaks to the amount of work that was being done already behind the scenes by some of the world's best scientists working on the what-if scenario, and then when the what-if scenario became real, they were ready. Right, and I mean, one of the things we may take away from this is mRNA technology that may be applied to many other illnesses. So, you know, disasters and, you know, as horrifying as they are, and we can look back at World War II or other, you know, huge disasters, are often great disruptors and moments when we have huge innovations as well. So, you know, World War II, unfortunately, gives the atomic bomb, but but also the jeep, uh, duct tape, I think there were these moments. Um, the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have taught us a lot about traumatic brain injury and how to treat it. And I think we'll come out of this uh, having, of course, re-changed uh, uh, our lives so we learn how to do so much by Zoom, but also with new scientific technology, and I hope also with more funding for public health. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.